Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, Molo Bonani. Hello, how's it? Welcome to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. I'm your favorite fat boy. And I'm joined, of course, in studio by the wonderful other half of the show, the, the brains really behind the operation, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Sarah Gon. Sorry, good morning. <laughs> Wow, um, that's not quite how I would have put it, but thank you, I'll take it, morning. I, I'm just the gift of the gab, sorry is the brains, <laughs> trusting me, that is how this arrangement works, and it works beautifully. Speaking about working beautifully, it is a beautiful Tuesday morning, it's 10 minutes past 9, and as always, we'll always begin the show with just looking at the news that was, what, what, what happened, what was topical in the last week since we last spoke, but before I get into that, remember, you can get involved in this conversation by joining us um, via the studio number, you can call in at 01014. Zero three zero two zero, or hey, catch us on the Telegram at zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine, or you know, if you're old school like me, as I always say every week, you know, catch us on the SMS line at three four five one nine. But hey, I always forget to mention this. You can also find us online um, via you know the social media um, accounts. Look for the High FM social media account, or hey, just find me on my own Big Daddy Liberty account. Guys, welcome to the IRR show. Sorry, it's been a jam-packed and busy week. In fact, one of the issues that happened last week we'll, we'll, we'll cover in the major interview segment just mm-hmm. after 20 minutes past nine as we have a guest from the Institute of Race Relations, um, Mr. Nick Lorimer, who will speak to us about the State of the Nation Address. You know, we'll go into the meat and potatoes of the speech and look at the sort of shenanigans that happened around it too. But um, speaking about the Sona Address, uh, uh, Sarah, you, you know, we it, it really was one of those just weird uh it, it was almost surreal mm. the, the sort of the attempts by various interest groups to distract from the actual reason for the day i mean the, the fw de Klerk, um uh, ruse what was all the, all of that about basically uh, um fw de Klerk had been asked in an interview about a week before what was apartheid a crime against humanity and he said it was basically terrible but it wasn't really it was a construct of the russians now of course you know, it, 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 it's, it's created a lot of heat and uh, not a lot of light. Um, as a result, people are attacking and showing and virtue signaling, etc., etc. And I, I just want to go a little into this and say this. I don't think anyone would disagree that it was a crime against humanity. Mm. It fits most of the requirements, not all. And that is why mm. when the resolution was proposed by the Soviet Union in 1973, the Western countries didn't vote for it. Mm. One of the many countries that voted for it that got it in was Uganda, which at then at the time was being run by Idi Amin. So yeah, it gives you no. an idea of some of the support. <laughs> but this was a, I mean, the actual going for resolution as opposed to the variety of countries that have been guilty of crimes against humanity. Um, the Russians were in, basically the USSR was in a fight of the Cold War. Mm. And this was very much positioning itself in the Cold War and positioning the ANC. I'm not sure, I can only speculate on this, uh, given the fact that no other country has ever been formally, there's formally been resolved to have committed a crime against humanity, um, that whether, whether it could have happened if the government wasn't white minority and the oppressed weren't a black majority. The, the, the interesting thing for me is, I don't think there's actually a, a need for a debate at all Mm-mm. because, you know, from a liberal pr- perspective, excuse me, any 
government system and any form of government in any way, just generally, that assaults people's mm. quality of life, their liberty, their God-given liberty, mm. by the way, mm. and their property rights, as apartheid did, is a, is a crime against humanity. Absolutely. Just like I would say colonialism is a crime against humanity. And in the same breath, I would say today's regime, with its, you know, pernicious um, policy proposals of, you know, expropriation without compensation or the national health insurance, all these things which essentially remove the freedoms of individuals are crimes against humanity. Yes, I know anybody listening will find that very controversial, but it really isn't. Anytime you give politicians the power to remove decision-making from the individual, you mm. and me and our families, mm. really, because as, as liberals, we talk a lot about individuals, but really we're a family society. Mm. And insofar as families are able to make decisions about their lives, uh, their freedoms, and their property rights, the ability to say that we, the, um, you know, the, the Goodmans or the Goldmans own the property. We, the Ngobeses, own this property. If any politician threatens that, mm. that is an attack on your very essence as who you are as a human with um, you know, God-given uh, inalienable rights. I, th- I think the two things that um, have had, it's had an un- unintended, perhaps or intended consequence. By being given the appellation of a crime against humanity, apartheid specifically. Apartheid is the one set of crimes against humanity that has a name. So it, it has a certain, almost a status because of that name. It doesn't, it's not about the substance about, it's about the fact that you mm. could, you could easily refer to it. And the other is, is uh, the other is, the, the fact is that I think it's been a disadvantage for us because in a way it's allowed us to, not allowed us, it's, it's given us space to hang on to the past. Yes. Because it's almost a, a terrible badge of honor. And, and I think that's, that's inhibited to a large extent our ability to learn from our past but not have our future dictated by it. No, I agree. And I think maybe as a last gasp on this, the, the one thing that I'm just cautious of and I'm very sort of um, aware and uh, alive to when it comes to the scoundrel that is the politician is this insistence on saying, hey, look at how bad the past is. Therefore, you can excuse how bad the, the, the present is yeah. uh, that I'm creating and how terrible even the future uh, will be that I'm looking to create. Mm. And that's where I think the ANC, which initially, you know, was trying to be diplomatic and then, you know, a press release issued yesterday basically said, yes, absolutely. We should look to ban FW declared from Parliament. That's where I think it's, it's that's the sort of last refuge of the scoundrel, exactly. where you you know you sort of um, you look to the, the theatrics of the EFF and really the bluster, yeah. and no, we all sort of miss the irony yeah. of looking at apartheid and its evil system of denying citizens life, liberty, and property, and somehow ignoring the current government's um, yeah. exact thing of denying people life, liberty, and property. So, I, can I just make one comment? Because this, yeah. this was the one comment that really got my go. Um, research and facilitators. In the study and facilitating studies in historical trauma and transformation at Stellenbosch, well, there's something to conjure with. <laughs> Wilhelm Verwut, I think it might be a grandson, um, said that what he said, what de Kerk said, reminded him of how much white work was urgently needed amongst white South Africans, and that just casts it in all the light it needn't, it doesn't need to be reflected. Mm. But let's move on because yeah. it was a very busy news week. Uh, the Democratic Alliance. Um, they're heading towards uh, their election. John Steenhazen launches his campaign. I mm-hmm. think John Moody also launched his. And, of course, the, the third uh, horse in the race, uh, Mbalin Tuli. Mm-hmm. This race is going to play out to be quite interesting, isn't it? I think it is. And, and John Moody's kind of really p- p- pinned his colors to the mast by saying that the, the 
others in the DA, in other words, the other faction, um, have not taken this Leclerc statement seriously enough. And I, I, I suspect that in, in reality, if the, if the other faction wins out, John Moody's position is with Herman Mashaba in the long run. Um, however that may turn out. So it's getting ugly there. I think, uh, Mbalan Tuli has been, uh, she hasn't said anything offensive or, or, or derogatory that I'm aware of. She's been fairly, you know, she's had a layer of dignity about her. She just has the disadvantage of being young. Yeah. Uh, and, and not as experienced. And I think that is going to tell against her. It's not going to be her color or her, or, or her or gender. It's going to be her age. Absolutely. So I'm going to move on. Um, to a, a big one, which I think will be linked to our conversation that we'll have with, um, you know, after the break mm. with, uh, um, uh, I can't say, I nearly said Ian Lorimer, it's Nick Lorimer. <laughs> um, you know, Gwede Mantashe, the president made this announcement that, you know, essentially municipalities can buy their own electricity, mm. uh, thereby freeing up, you know, the grip of ESCOM on, on, on uh, being the single provider of, of power. But, there's no time frames, are there? And, and Gwede himself, the Minister of Energy, doesn't seem to be want to be well, pushed from I, I this. I think there's a hell of a lot of irony in the fact that Gwede Mantashe, of all people, is the Minister of Energy. <laughs> uh, because energy is not in a word you associate with, with Gwede. Sir Ramaphosa puts this in his sonar. It's probably the only thing he, he says that's worth anything. Yep. And Gwede Mantashe then comes out and in true Gwede's fashion says he will not commit to re- renewable energy time frame. In, in other words, guys, just in case you thought I was going to be, you know, soft and giving and, and support the idea on my terms. And you think, oh, God. Which means you know, you're likely slow walk this because of his ideological underpinnings, really. And, and, and making sure the process is possibly making sure the process is in place for the right people to get the contract. Mm. Um, I want to move on in our last minute before the mm. first break. Helen Zilla closes mm. her Twitter account. Mm. Why? Um, I, I actually, I actually didn't see the the, the tweet that the, that that started it, but it, I know that it involved uh, her granddaughter. Yeah. And the attacks and the attacks that followed, uh, she said, "This is it." You know, I'm not. And then, of course, the what was what I did see, which was um, sadly depressing, was of course the 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 Twitter verse that said. Uh, thank you, goodbye racists, mm. silly gogo, whatever the, whatever. It, it was that sort of theme that went along, uh, that, that went along. I frankly, I, I'm, I'm not a fan, not in this context of Twitter as a means of trying to have a conversation yeah. with the whole world. Yeah, just, and just a quick reminder people, Twitter, Facebook, social media is not the real world. You, mm. Sometimes you have to just walk away and take a step out into the wonderful sunny uh, mornings and actually greet people around you and you'll realize people don't hate you. Mm. It's, you know. Anyway, we're going to head to our first ad break and after the break we have Mr. Nick Lorimer from the IRR. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Libertin. I'm joined, of course, by the other half of the show, Sarah Gunn. And we are about to look at the issue of the State of the Nation address. I don't think we've actually, if you listen to any sort of other radio stations too, I don't think we've actually, I don't think we've actually gone into the sort of nitty gritties of what the president said. Mm. Uh, we've been distracted, Sarah, have we not been by, you know, the, the sideshows of either the EFF's disruption and, um, you know, the, the, the declared furor, um, forage, if anything. Mm. Um, in studio, we've got Mr. Nick Lorimer, who is a writer and an, an, an analyst, excuse me, at the IRR, that's the Institute of Race Relations. And he's going to help us unpack 
um, not only some of the shenanigans around the speech, but also the speech itself. Because I do think South Africans need to pay attention to what a you know sitting president has to say around what he, um, you know, the charges he'll be leading um, in terms of some of the things he'll be rolling out in a society. Nick, good morning to you. How are you doing, sir? Good morning, Cecil. I'm doing pretty good this morning. Uh, good to have you, man. Um, Nick, let's perhaps begin and get out of the way, you know, the, 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 the theatrics of it all. The speech itself, 90 minutes late, as usual, the red in tooth and claw communists that are the EFF disrupted the, the house. Uh, was it really politically profitable for them to do this? I think uh, for the EFF, it kind of works for them in the sense that it's what sort of their supporters expect. This is how they've built their identity as... I mean, if you talk to EFF supporters, they think it is the main anti-corruption party. And mm-hmm. that's because they see it as taking drastic action and overturning norms to, uh, to, to oppose mm. what they claim is corruption. Mm. Um, not to be proven yet, but in this case, they've been targeting Provin Gordon. Um, but as one of my uh, colleagues from the IRR said, uh, Gabriel Krauser, um, th- this was sort of the distraction from the distraction that is Sona. Mm. No, uh, but, but the funny thing is, that I, and I really thought it was actually quite amusing, is that it seemed as though at some point, just before Tandy Modise, the Speaker of the House, suspended proceedings, it seemed as though the EFF itself was actually beginning to peter out, um, almost as though you know the, uh, the the clasping at straws, finding any reason to disrupt this house sitting, just wasn't it wasn't washing over, was it? Yeah, it's kind of the way they do it is it's made to look like a uh, sort of very authentic. Um, from the heart kind of thing. But it's a very planned event. So they weren't planning to disrupt the whole speech. Yeah. They were going to go for a short amount of time, and then once they had gotten the TV coverage, annoyed everyone, and made themselves look powerful, they were going to just leave or be thrown out. Mm. Well, they succeeded in that last week, <laughs> didn't they? <laughs> yes, they did. um, and then... Let's come to the sort of the meat, if there's any substance at all, um, of what they raised as issues. Suddenly, the presence of the former president of this country under the apartheid era, the last apartheid president, really, F.W. de Klerk, was a problem. Like, why? What was the reasoning behind that, according to them? Well, they 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 see him as a as as a as a rather than as the reformer who ends apartheid, they see him as the uh, as a great proponent of apartheid. Um, but that, in a lot of ways, was just a sort of distraction. They were throwing that out as a kind of early cover thing. They were trying to stir the pot. But ultimately, their real goal was to target Private Gordon, oh. um, who they have been assisting one particular faction of the ANC in attacking, and they've been accusing him of being corrupt, uh, being improperly related to uh, independent power producers, and to basically uh, removing black people from positions of management power in uh, ESCOM and other state-owned enterprises. It does beg the question, though, what does Praveen know or have because um, this is politics, guys. Politics mm. is always some uh, nefarious background agenda that we we aren't privy to sometimes. Um, in terms of the machinations of how they play out, that kind of will see the EFF respond and react so viscerously. Uh, viscer- oh, what, what am I looking for? Um, vociferously, excuse me, against um, Praveen. What do we What do we know about this? Do you, any insight there, Nick? I think a lot of it is 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 not so much a conflict over ideology. Um, which is how a lot of people in the media sort of seem to paint it. You know, a lot of the like me- media 24 and that kind of thing, they've been 
putting this as the state capture versus the anti-state capture mm. people, with Provin Gordon being the hero of the anti-state capture people. But no. that's not really true. Mm. It's more like an access to resources, I think. Um, so you've got the sort of racial nationalist bloc, which uh, now sees a temporary alliance between the EFF and people like Ace Makashula. Mm. And then you've got the sort of more hardline communist bloc, who are seen as less corrupt. Um, but are perhaps in a lot of ways more ideologically focused on the project of uh, government control of the economy. Mm. And Pravin Gordon is definitely part of that block, um, uh, as is probably the president at this point, considering a lot of his policy proposals. Mm. All right. I, I, I think that sort of played itself out. But in all of this, you had a, a very patiently um, seated president of the republic waiting to actually deliver the speech. And let's actually go into the speech a little bit, because... I think the first five minutes of it were actually quite relatively good in, in terms of the, just the honesty. Um, you know, he, he began by saying that, look, um, things are a mess. Of course, he doesn't say why they're a mess and how they are instrumental in that mess. Um, things are a mess. Things are looking upside down. And he goes into various issues like SCOM and the like, uh, load shedding. It was relatively honest in that regard. But then he lost me when he then says, uh, and I quote here, we have acted firmly against state capture, close quote. The first question I asked in my mind is, but Who's actually behind bars? Like, <laughs> who, who's genuinely facing the threat of, of, of the courts, you know, placing these individuals uh, and locking them away? Uh, is, is there something sort of like, uh, talk to me about this, Nick. Is, are, are we being sort of bamboozled here? So once again, we're seeing ANC internal dynamics, uh, faction fighting playing out across into the sort of broader public spectrum. Um, in this case, a lot of the speech is casting his block of the party as reformers who are rebuilding the state's capacity after it was destroyed by his opponents within the ANC. So when he talks about we've acted against people of state capture, I mean, he hasn't really, but what he's saying is that I'm against those people. And then as uh, his allies in the media helpfully pointed out, mm. uh, they immediately then zoomed onto the sort of, onto one of the Zuma family, I think mm. it was in the, in the mm. audience mm. and, and said mm. no reaction from them. Um, so, that's clearly how he's trying to set the whole thing up. Well, you know what I found funny, just taking yeah. on to your point, is that everything is presented in terms of it is you, the South African people, who are carrying the burden. Um, our country is facing a stark reality. But we are doing something about it. It's a, in other words, there's absolute dissociation from the fact that we are facing a stark reality because they have put us in that position, but they are now doing something about it, which... I think uh, goes with uh, Tony Leon's description of it as a somnambulant sonar, um, because after that, it, it, it just sounded like last year and the year before. So like a lot of Cyril's uh, rhetoric, it's got like a lot of feel-good stuff in it and a lot of things that, especially if you're from the sort of business community or maybe you're a member of a minority, um, you can feel very sort of safe and warm and fuzzy if you don't really think about it too much. Um, so, like, it begins with the sort of uh, acceptance of the things that are wrong. But then it talks about the, the successes. One of them is the state capture thing, which is not really true. But then he goes on to congratulate the matric class yeah. for the high pass rate. Yeah. But just as reports have come out that something like 70% of grade fours in the South African education system are not able to read for meaning, which is a shocking indictment of our education system, mm. which continues to be ranked one of the worst in the world when it comes to maths and science education. So holding that up as a success is not very good. Mm. Um, now, uh, I think Sona has a credibility problem uh, mm. on, on the whole. Uh, it's very often that presidents, not just uh, Ramaphosa, but also Zuma, promised things that 
uh, they never came to be. Mostly, it's jobs. It's usually mm. there's a promise of X number of jobs, and these never come to uh, fruition. Um, and as such, we don't have to take seriously necessarily everything that gets said in the speech. So, for example, the uh, the independent power producers mm. thing. We've seen exactly as he talked about at the beginning of the show how that sort of goes awry. He talks about how we're going to be you know buying from these independent power producers and. We're going to be changing things up, and ESCOM is going to no longer be load shedding. And then Guerra Montage says, no, well, actually, uh, it's not so simple. Mm. Mm. But I want to come back briefly, because I think there's a larger point, and I've heard you make it before on uh, The Daily Friend. Um, remember, you can find all our writing, opinion, and analysis on The Daily Friend website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. I've heard you make this point that um, we, we talk a lot about state capture and we other it, right? And politicians do this really well. Because they'll say, ah, all the people who were involved in that are being hauled before Judge Zondo at the Zondo Commission and they need to account for this and this and that and, and the third. But we, we forget that the ANC in and of itself is a big proponent of state capture through its own policies. Mm. One of which called, is called cater deployment. The idea that a, 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 a pilot bureau in the ANC, um, gets to get, come together, decide who gets to be placed in strategic places, uh, spots within the state in, in essence to capture it. And that is their state policy. Why do we miss that element of it? And why don't you have a president who stands up and says, guys, it may not be politically profitable for me to do this, but for the sake of the country, I'm going to and the practice of cater deployment. Um, so it was actually that version of state capture that you've talked about, which is what I think is the true meaning of the word state capture, mm. um, was originally uh, talked about by Helen Ziller. She tried to popularize it. Um, but ultimately, the sort of media kind of didn't really take her seriously. Um, but a lot of the problems that we're seeing now, like the way that ANC faction fighting is being brought out into the open in the country as a whole, is as a direct result of the ANC's national re- democratic revolution and cater deployment strategies, mm. which seek to take control basically of every institution of society by putting loyal caters of the movement in charge of them. Um, and this is a, this is carried out across business, across civil society, across uh, universities. And uh, the end result is that the state, which is supposed to be a neutral entity mm. uh, filled with uh, civil servants, is captured and becomes a complete tool of the political forces that an extension of the party politics exactly, basically exactly um so that you can't even fire just as an example you, you can't even fire a, a poorly performing dg or a poorly performing manager yes. because politically he may be more senior than you within the party that's the sort of paralysis you now have in the state and this is this is you often see this in that the anc sends a lot of its best and brightest not to parliament but rather to uh the 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 yes, administrations so. because you the, the pay is actually much higher there um, compared to a lot of people in government uh, MPs actually don't get paid that much for example I think middle managers at this SABC have, I, I, I haven't fact checked this but yes. earn about the same as or slightly more than an MP does mm. but now here's where I wanted to link this in uh, before we move on because I want us to look at ESCOM and a few other areas too he then talks about how he's going to embark on this back to basics, building the capable state, um, and, you know, essentially, uh, you know, creating a, a functional government, which, you know, he then sort of explains, uh, he then sort of explains how it will play out. So, for example, on water licenses, it'll, it'll only take you 30 days, excuse me, 90 days to get um, an approval. All these sort of wishful thinking things that are part of this quote-unquote capable state that he'll be building, but no one 
in terms of the political analysis I've been listening to, no one sort of goes back and says, but how do you build a capable state if you still have Abo, uh, K, um, excuse me, Keda deployment and this national democratic revolution doctrine? Uh, sorry, can I just add to that? Added to that is the fact that, you know, the water license is 30 days. The fact is that most of the water infrastructure in the country is near destruction or destroyed. Yeah. So there's no water to get a license for. And the other problem is you can't have a capable state without accountability. Mm. And because of uh, cater deployment and the political control of everything, you no longer have any real line of accountability. And as a result, you can't get anything to work. Mm. You can't fire people at the lower levels because the unions will, will go on strike and riot and maybe bring you down or knock your faction out of power in the ANC. Uh, you can't fire middle managers because they're, they're connected within the, uh, the, the political parties and might retaliate against you. Um, and so there's this total paralysis where no one ever is held to account for poor performance, mm. which means that you can't even begin to build a capable state, mm. never mind the problems with the education system so that you aren't getting good workers coming mm. in, never mind uh, all of the problems with sort of general lack of capacity and the fact that the country is beginning to enter uh, a debt trap, mm. um, which I'm sure we'll see more of next week when the budget comes out. Mm. Uh, we're very far from the capable state, and so a radical new approach is needed. Mm. Let's, let's go into the debt issue. Because it wasn't really spoken of in real terms by the president. It was almost glossed over. Uh, there was mention of it, don't get me wrong, but it was glossed over. Because if you look at the, the issue of debt, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring in ESCOM into this conversation, because ESCOM is by far the single largest um, entity that owes something, 400 billion rands in debt, and accumulates every year 20 billion um, to that figure. In my conversation with renowned economist Davi Roet for my podcast, Liberty and Friends, he made mention something which scared me in real terms. As long as, I quote, as long as this country has load shedding, we will not see economic growth that is anything over a percent. One percent becomes the cap. Mm -hmm. And even then, we'll be nowhere near to reaching that one percent cap in any event. We heard almost nothing uh, by the president in terms of uh, you know, sort of meat and potatoes details around how he's going to cut the size of the state in order to save funds. He sort of glossed over it and said, you know, we have to look into this. But one would expect that leadership at this point has to begin to say, look, we're, we're heavily indebted. We're beginning to pay more in servicing debt than service delivery in some cases. We've got to cut the, 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 the wage bill down by X percent, and this is the time frame. Why are we not hearing this from the president? Because it's very politically difficult. Um, he doesn't want to, he wants to fix a lot of problems by basically just spending over them. But South Africa is starting to reach the point where it can't really do that anymore. So, uh, what we really need to do is, um, cut the, cut the size of the state down a little bit. Uh, because normally governments justify their addiction to debt by saying, well, it's fine, we'll grow our way out. Mm. We'll grow our way out of it. But we're not growing. But we're not growing mm. and we've got severe constraints on our growth. So there is no, going to be no growth, at least in the short term. Um, that, that can get us out of the sort of financial hole, which means that the size of the state needs to be reduced. And once again, we run into the same political problems. Mm. You can't fire people from ESCOM. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, the, which is something that the CEO and the president, the mm. CEO of ESCOM and the president, uh, have already committed to not doing, is firing anyone from ESCOM. Um, well, we're seeing this and, play out at SAA, exactly. for example. Yeah. And SAA as well. Um, but not just, not just in the state owned enterprises, in the, the, the administrations themselves. Mm. So I worked briefly in local government, and during that time, uh, there was an enormous amount of, uh, middle managers and community liaisons and sort of middle positions that didn't add much value, but still drew full salaries. Mm. 
and that kind of stuff has bloated the state to a, to the extent that I think we're at the point now where income tax returns don't pay off the entire public wage bill. I think I think what they probably intend to do or are doing is a mistake the private sector made about 40 years ago, and that is to offer voluntary retrenchment, voluntary retirement. The only problem with that is the people who can afford to take it are the people who desperately need to work. The, the, the lame and the lazy and the irrelevant don't come forward because they know the, the other employment prospects are null. So this is this is one of the things that was announced was a 400 million rand voluntary retirement package for workers at ESCOM. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, as you said, the, the the big problem here is that your most experienced and your most employable workers will take that, mm-hmm. or people who are going to sort of mm-hmm. retire. And that means um, that you're basically left with the kind of people who are never going to leave employment at ESCOM mm-hmm. because they can't get a job anywhere mm-hmm. else. And so in a lot of ways, you actually make the problem worse. So in the short term, you sort of save some money because you've basically gotten rid of some expensive employees. Um, but the problems – because the problem with ESCOM is not that there's any one problem. There's uh, everything from overstaffing to old equipment to inexperience in the workforce to all sorts of problems like that. And you can't uh, – there's no, there's no magic bullet for it. Mm. All right, Ian, ah, Nick, excuse me. Um, <laughs> after the break, we are going to break down the speech in three ways. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Very Western of me to, to do that. And um, we'll stay in conversation with Nick Larimer from the IRR after the break. Make sure you call in or you send us your messages so we can actually put those to our guest. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. All right, guys, welcome back to the IRR show. The last 10 minutes of our interview with, uh, uh, I nearly said it, but Nick Lorimer from the IRR. Nick, I did say before the break that we would look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, um, I want to be fair and I want to be charitable actually to Ramaphosa. There really were some silver linings in this. We've kind of crossed it already in terms of the issue of ESCOM and the concession, if you will, by the central government that, look, we kind of need to sort of let go of, of, uh, the insistence on, on, on holding on to a single provider of electricity and actually allow municipalities, especially the more well-functioning ones, which I can almost guess where they mo- most of those are, um, to buy their own electricity. This is a good thing, is it not? Yeah, no, this is a very good thing. One of the reasons that we're in this big electricity mess at the moment is because uh, we've been shackled to this great behemoth called ESCOM, and there's been very little alternatives um, for what we can seek out in terms of power. Mm. But now Ramaphosa has said that municipalities can buy uh, electricity for themselves. And, of course, the DA claps loudly because, you know, they, 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 they understand the politi- political ramifications of this. Exactly. They can end load shedding quickly because they're able to get their ducks in a row and buy electricity. Exactly. It bodes well for them, does it not? It, it bodes very well. And this is the benefit of decentralization is that uh, you allow people to come up with different solutions and to solve their problems at a local level using local solutions. Um, and as a result, even if ESCOM remains a basket case for a long time in areas that really kind of step up to the plate, uh, you can see uh, the possibility of reducing the effectiveness, the, the, the effect of load shedding um, and possibly maybe even eliminating it entirely in the long run um, if municipalities are able to uh, procure electricity for themselves. But this is something that the ANC has been very reluctant to do. So its ideological underpinnings uh, want to centralize everything. It likes to kind of force power to the center so it can control it and direct it according to a central plan. And the result of that is that it likes things like ESCOM, a big behemoth. I'm going to mention two and two or three other good things, but unfortunately they came or they come with a bad element. So they'll, they'll introduce the bad in, in and of themselves. 
the president announces that, look, we're going to get serious about um, uh, reintroducing specialized units and SAPs, bolstering them, speci- um, strengthening them. This is the same government, of course, that had often shut a lot of these down. But in any event, he says, look, we're going to get serious about these. We'll even build a, a, a detective's university in Hammondskrow, of all places. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, and... Um, but I remember thinking, what use is all of this if you're not – two things. What use is all of this if you're not getting the basics in some cases right? So, for example, some of the crime labs are in an absolute mm-hmm. shambolic state. And actually, we really need the private sector to come in and effectively run them because, you know, our labs in this country are effectively privatized. But here's the, the kick, and I want us to talk about this one because I know it's a shared interest. He says nothing also about his own minister of police threatening legal gun owners in this country with the confiscation of their guns and the, and the banning, really, of private gun ownership. Are we not talking with a forked tongue on this issue? No, definitely. So, as you said, we really need to improve the basics in the police force. There are uh, significant problems with morale and training um, and equipment in the police force generally, which, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do at the higher levels. If you haven't fixed that basic problem, if you haven't gotten sort of lower ranking officers and station commanders and stuff to be uh, more effective, you're really not going to make a big dent in the, in the crime problem with specialized units. Mm. Um, and as for the guns, uh, this is once again, you know, if you, if you, if you allow ordinary law-abiding citizens to buy firearms, they're able to protect themselves and you decentralize a little bit of the problem of self-defense away mm. from, away from the state. Um, but due to ideological reasons, the government doesn't really want to do this. There's very little evidence that private gun ownership drives crime. Mm. It, it can drive, uh, the number of guns used in suicides, for example, but it doesn't actually drive crime that, that clearly. Um, and so it's, it's, it's actually a very effective way for citizens to be able to defend themselves and to take power back to the local, to the smallest level, which is the level of the individual. Another good, which unfortunately comes with a bit of a bad, is he says, look, we, we, we've looked at other countries around the world and we recognize the need for these skills that, that prepare society for the next industrial revolution, if you will. Um, and he says, look, we'll introduce coding and robotics into our schools and really even to the ECD, early childhood development level. But immediately my mind just went, but who's going to be teaching these skills when the math level already is a big problem? Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is this is what we talked about a little bit earlier about how the sort of low levels of the education system are so uh, dysfunctional at the moment that a thing like a robotics course or a coding course, which are very important skills and it is right to focus on them, um, are not going to have the sort of input from both the teaching and the student side uh, because the institutions have been so gutted at a bottom level. What needs to happen is the stranglehold of groups like uh, SADTU, the South African Democratic Teachers Union, need to be broken over the educational establishment. Mm. Um, and there needs to be uh, more privatization through a, possibly a voucher system mm-hmm. of the school of the school system, um, so that we can begin to have an improvement in the quality, not just the quantity of education mm. that even poor South Africans will have access to, um, that will end up in us being able to have robotics and coding courses. Because right now we're not in a position to 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 promote that stuff. We must look at the ugly, therefore. Um, Unfortunately, this president said nothing and, in fact, doubled down on the destructive policies that we know are coming our way of EWC. In fact, his words mm-hmm. were along the lines of uh, expropriation without compensation is possible and land allocated on communal land, um, w- excuse me, communal land will be allocated to more people. Um, there was no and nothing in the conversation around bolstering private property rights of 
you know, individuals who historically have been dispossessed of those. Why is this a big problem, uh, uh, Nick? So there was an incoherence in the speech. On one hand, he supports Tito Mboweni's economic mm. uh, reform plan, uh, in theory at least, um, which he, he endorses. And that's something that's pretty good document. It doesn't do everything it needs to do, but the IRR has, thinks that it's a very good step in the right direction. But at the same time, he also says we're going to uh, remove a part of the Bill of Rights and take away your property rights. Mm. And these two things cannot Coexist together. You cannot reform the economy to have growth and take away people's property rights mm. at the same time. Um, because the instability and uncertainty and abuses that will result from expropriation without compensation, which is not just targeted at farmers and rural land, you can very easily see a situation where a cash-strapped municipality uh, gets in contact with a cater who wants to build maybe a big shopping center or something on the edge of its uh, land, and then it goes to poor uh, black people in bond houses and it says to them, sorry, uh, we're empowering a black industrialist here. Mm. Uh, you're going to lose your land and there's going to be no compensation. Mm. The potential for abuse is enormous. And as long as that exists, there will be very little growth in the economy. And so th- that, that needed to be addressed, but instead Ramaphosa said something along the lines of, I actually look forward to amending the constitution. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, the last one I wanted to raise in terms of the ugly, again, almost linked, and we only have a minute left, um, is the national health insurance. Again, a doubling down on this, even when the numbers he, intru- he himself cites are just paltry. For example, he cites how, oh, we've now finally developed a, a, a an electronic da- database. Um, and Lord, this has been somehow fancy and, and fantastic because of the NHI. What's the problem here? Like, why are we not getting that, you know, state control of things is just not a good idea? Once again, it's accountability problems. It's politics involved in the running of hospitals. Um, and it's also uh, underfunding problems. One of the reasons that our healthcare isn't uh, amazing in South Africa is because we actually just don't have enough money to pay for the quality of healthcare that we would want people to have. Mm. Um, and NHI is not going to fix things. In fact, it's probably going to take the private sector, which is at least relatively functional, mm. and lower it until it's destroyed like the state mm. sector. Guys, that was Mr. Nick Lorimer from the Institute of Race Relations. Remember, you can find his writing, his analysis and opinion and of those of his colleagues on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. After the break, the last 10 minutes of the show as we talk about the news ahead. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the IRR show, the last five minutes, sorry, not ten, of the show. And um, I think what we're going to be doing now, Sarah, let's look at the news week ahead. Um, what should people be watching out for? What are we should what should we be flagging um, in a post-Sona South Africa now? The, um, uh, there's probably only, in fact, one news event, and that's going to be the budget. Yes, because he has t- what what uh, uh, what Mboweni has to do on Wednesday. Uh, is it this Wednesday or next Wednesday? I think it's next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Uh, but it, 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 talk is about the budget and everything to do with it. Um, is that it, it's, it, he's got to somehow take the incoherence of Sona and, yes. the, and the contradictions and allocate money to achieving the achievable, the unachievable and it's it's a, it's a very difficult task. Mm. I'm not entirely sure how he's going to do it. I'm also not comfortable in in that same minister, the finance minister, mm. trawling for opinion on social media. I mean, th- there's almost this pretense by politicians that oh, look, we don't really know what to do, mm. and we need to sort of put together this brain's trust of a, a wisdom of the crowds, mm. if you will, um, to try and steer us in the right way. When in reality, these are 
people who know exactly what needs to be done, yeah. but they let their ideology get in the way. So I want to see how that plays yeah. out. Well, I think to some extent you're looking at a sort of level, a level of sort of uh, folksy populism yes. um, versus um, we, we know what we're really going to do. And I, I think the folksy populism stuff has, 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 has worn off. But that's that's in in ten days' time. What I do think we have a look at immediately because it started yesterday and it's carrying on, is a witness against Durumieni in the uh, Zondo Commission, mm. who is giving evidence in camera as being known as Mr. X. Now, how frightening must she be if he has to go, mm. <laughs> if he has to have his identity mm. hidden and mm. be hidden? That's mm. that's mostly she'll know who he is, but but he's hidden. Um, I, I get the impression that she is probably one of the most evil people our, uh, our uh, state, uh, sorry, um, state-owned enterprises has actually had at the helm. Mm-hmm. And uh, SAA is clearly, um, you know, where it is because of, where, of, of who she is. Absolutely. And another thing I need to remind listeners about, I think, which will become an, an issue going forward is, you know, Parliament still has opened the um, period for comment mm. on expropriation without compensation. And you know, I, I, I really encourage people yeah. to come forward and actually have their say. You can do that, in fact, via the Institute of Race Relations. I know they're running a campaign mm. to try and get a million voices into Parliament um, and, and, to and do the, this. And the individual applications, it's not, it's not support of our submission. Yes. It's, 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 uh, people can, can use an independent I application. I think it's super important. Yeah. You've, you've got to have your, your say on this. Um, Something I'm I'm going to be watching out for is Moody's has seems to be you know has revised our growth outlook mm-hmm. um, down, mm-hmm. which for me is a precursor to that downgrade. I've yeah. been saying this for a very long time, especially on my podcast. Um, that this year will be defined to a large extent in terms of the rating agencies mm-hmm. by Moody's finally downgrading South Africa and that kicking off a series of events um, and things which are absolutely, absolutely scary for the saver, those of us who do the responsible thing mm-hmm. in society. So I think we need to be watching out for that. Sarah? I, I, I think just to bear in mind with that, that ESCOM is, is, is essentially declared junk, the land bank has been declared junk. And all of those, both, you know, the crucial impact that that has is psychologically unreal. Um, I, I, I think for, portends rather, rather badly. So I, I think we're looking at a downgrade and that's coming in March. Absolutely. Guys, remember, you can find a lot of the news, analysis and opinion that we often talk about here on the show on our website. That's the Daily Friend. It's a uh, online platform which has all the an- analysts that we often bring onto the show. You can find that, of course, by going to www.dailyfriend.co.za. All of this is often on there and it's a really great, great platform for for viewing uh, the news and current affairs through a liberal lens and of course support me your favorite fat boy big daddy liberty on my social media as i introduce some really interesting content for you guys also um this week you know on wednesday in fact i'll be releasing an episode with rowan polivan who's from the south african zionist federation as we look at the issue of zionism and my zionism zionism in particular and the deal of the century the middle east peace plan i know you've covered that on here on high but rowan brings some interesting insights which i think you should look out for you can find that of course by Finding me on all your social media platforms. That's search for Big Daddy Liberty. Um, that's Big Daddy Liberty or the Big Liberty Show. So that's going to be an interesting one this week. Um, Sarah, I know we're going to have some interesting guests next week as we wrap up. Um, we're, we're going to be focusing on the budget, nothing else. I think we, we might have Ian Crookshanks on the show, but I'm not sure yet. Um, but you guys can look forward to that show. Sarah, your last word? My last word. Um... 
I don't think we're going to get the change we need any time soon because the one thing that came out of the speech was, was Ramaphosa's constant reference to consensus seeking. Yeah. And consensus seeking is not a form of leadership. Absolutely. Guys, not always a form of leadership. Absolutely, guys. Thank you very much. This has been the IRR show. Remember, you can find us on the Daily Friend, dailyfriend.co.za. And we'll see you guys next week.